HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. This episode is brought to you by Samuel Adams, Brewing the American Dream. Hear stories from their inspiring entrepreneurs on Let's Talk About Food, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out with me, your host and tour guide, Capri Cafaro. Our show this hour focuses on the impact of urban farming in the Midwest. Most think of this region as a vast agricultural landscape and overlook the many city centers that suffer from food insecurity right in the backyard of America's breadbasket. Thankfully, there are several organizations across the Midwest dedicated to the practice of urban farming, sharing the harvest bounty with the food banks, but also training community members to grow food to feed themselves and their neighbors. One of these organizations is Harvest STL in St. Louis, Missouri. Their executive director, Katie Hoke, joins us to discuss how their apprenticeship program breaks down barriers and empowers a new generation of farmers. But first, we meet Semra Fedovich, program manager of the Juniper Gardens Training Farm at Cultivate KC in Kansas City. Semra works closely with other nonprofit organizations to identify and then train refugees to become farmers. One of those refugee farmers will also be our special guest later in the program. But first, let's welcome Semra to the program. Semra, we're uh, really happy that you could join Eat Your Heartland app today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Well, you um, are the program manager for one of the programs at Cultivate uh, Casey, Cultivate Kansas City. Um, Before we get into what you specifically do, I'd love you to tell our listeners a little bit about the origins of uh, the organization Cultivate KC and, um, you know, kind of how you've gotten to where you are today. Yeah, of course. So I've been with Cultivate for almost four years, but the organization started in 2005 and it started as the center or Kansas City Center for Urban Agriculture. So it really started at a time where there really wasn't any 
urban farming or urban agriculture happening in Kansas City. Most of the farming was still going on outside of the city. So our two founders, Daniel Dermitzel and Catherine Kelly, um, they were both actually farmers in Kansas City and met at a farmer's market, and they decided to start the Kansas City Center for Urban Agriculture as a way to promote urban agriculture, to teach people about agriculture, and also just to engage more citizens in agriculture itself. So whether that be consumers, restaurants, youth, um, people interested in learning more about agriculture. Um, so when the organization started, there weren't many urban farms. They kind of started the first urban farm. They did apprenticeships, lots of outreach events, education, advocacy work, policy work. Um, they had a farm where we were um, doing apprenticeships, harvesting and selling vegetables, primarily to restaurants, also at farmer's markets. And since 2005, the organization has kind of evolved because now if you look at Kansas City, we have a really robust urban agriculture scene. There are lots of um, small urban farmers all around the city. There are tons of farmers markets. There are different organizations that are involved in urban, urban agriculture now. So the organization has kind of just shifted the demand for urban agriculture services. Mm -hmm. um, so to date, we have four different programs. Um, I manage the New Roots for Refugees program. We have a food access program that primarily helps low-income consumers purchase fresh produce. We have a Westport Commons farm that is a very new program, but that will basically be a small hub in Midtown to help other urban growers in that area. And then we have the Metro Farms and Food Systems program, which offers assistance to urban growers by teaching workshops, um, having an annual conference, coordinating bulk orders, things like that. And then, of course, we still do lots of public education and outreach and advocacy work. Now, this may seem like a ridiculous question, but I feel like I have to ask it because I think that some folks uh, listening might be asking themselves this question. When you, you know, hear, you know, this is a program about the Midwest and you're dealing with Kansas City, which, of course, is, yes, a metropolitan area. But I think that, you know, people, I think, see the Midwest as in some circumstances, you know, one giant agricultural, you know, um, location, uh, a place that where, you know, farms are everywhere. Um, and it seems maybe seem interesting to people that, well, you know, there were no urban farms in Kansas City and there, you know, um, there actually is kind of an urban and rural divide, even in states where maybe they're perceived as rural. Did you find or did, did the founders maybe convey that it was difficult to get people on board with the concept of, you know, farming in an urban setting because there was an assumption that you could get, you know, um, produce or, or, you know, other things um, off of a farm just, you know, outside the city. So why bother doing it inside the city? Mm. I don't think I can really speak to, you know, when they started the organization. I imagine that there was some pushback even to date, there is still a lot of work that we have to do to convince people that urban agriculture is important and necessary. I think I'm specifically thinking a lot about 
urban zoning and planning. Mm. Um, a lot of urban planners don't really think about agriculture or food production. I mean, I think they think about green spaces sometimes, but I think, you know, like what is a green space? What can a green space be? Um, I think there isn't a lot of outside of the box thinking about Mm -hmm. green spaces. Um, so there's still a lot of, you know, convincing that we have to do on that end of like, this is a good use of green space. It has multiple benefits. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of, well, I can't say this as a generalization, but a lot of the farms that I see around Kansas City, when you head out of the city, they're not really doing a lot of direct to consumer mm-hmm. sales. You know, it will be larger scale cattle farms or row crop farms. There isn't a lot of engagement with consumers. And so I think that's where urban agriculture is just drastically different because we're like right there in your face. You see it all the time. It's hard to ignore. Um, and that is where a lot of engagement and learning comes into play. So what about sustainability? You know, you mentioned that, um, you know, people are trying to um, kind of re- imagine green space. Maybe it takes a little bit of convincing um, to, you know, make people realize the value of green space. But since, you know, there really has been, you know, an incremental, I think, increase in attention surrounding sustainability, um, you know, whether that is, you know, um, more environmentally friendly choices because you're being able to source your food, um, you know, closer to home, which has a lesser, you know, carbon footprint, or, you know, sometimes there are, um, you know, roof gardens that, um, you know, sort of help as well. Um, has sustainability been part of these conversations? Yeah. So the program that I manage and most of the, all the cultivate farming that has been happening through our organization, we have always followed organic practices or, you know, some sustainable practices in terms of the actual farming that we're doing. Um, we're also in a position where when you're urban farming, you kind of have to build healthy soil because healthy soil isn't present in urban areas. So that's a sustainability strategy. Um, we, uh, the program that I manage, we push a lot for, you know, like water conservation strategies mm-hmm. through using drip irrigation planting native plants, um, attracting beneficial insects, attracting pollinators. That's a really mm-hmm. big thing. I think a lot of people have heard about, you know, the These. scare about us losing yeah. the pollinators that we have. Um, and what's really interesting is just yesterday, we had a group of folks that work at NRCS, which is the Natural Resource Conservation Service of the USDA from the state of Kansas, come out and visit the training farm that I manage. And they were out here and it was really cool because they typically work with larger producers around the state of Kansas. And they said like, wow, most of the practices you're following on this seven acre farm in the city are things that we're trying to get people to adopt on larger farms. Mm. So that's also a really cool aspect of the urban agriculture scene that's was built in Kansas City and is growing in Kansas City is that most of these farmers are following organic practices and sustainability is a huge motivation for why people are even involved. That's great to hear. I, I 
So I kind of figured that that would be part of the conversation, but it's good to, to hear that it is uh, being engaged in, in practice. I want to get a little bit deeper into the program that uh, you run, the New Roots for Refugees. But before we turn our attention to that, um, I want to rewind just a minute to one of the initial programs that was, um, you know, part of uh, the uh, Kansas City Center for Urban Agriculture, um, and that's the uh, the Growing Growers program. You mentioned the apprenticeship, um, but I think that it would be good to to um, have a better understanding because I think this is a great building block to some of the things, some of the programs you're doing now. Um, how was the Growing Growers, um, you know, structured, and how did it help, um, you know, uh, bring and develop new farmers uh, in in the community? Yeah, so Catherine Kelly, one of the co-founders of Cultivate KC, also helped found the Growing Growers program, which is primarily run through Kansas State Extension um, and Kansas State University. So it's a program, there's a steering committee, so lots of different stakeholders are involved in kind of running and administering the program. Um, but basically, it is a apprenticeship program for anyone that is interested in doing a season-long apprenticeship at a, re- at a farm located regionally around Kansas City. So the program will partner an applicant with a farm, maybe based on what they're interested in learning, a geographic area, how many hours they want to work. There could be lots of different reasons. So they partnered the apprentices with a farm. So the apprentice is doing a a full apprenticeship at a farm, learning the ins and outs of running said farm. And then they're also a part of a workshop series that happens throughout that entire um, season. So there could be 12 apprentices apprenticing at different farms, and then they come together like eight or 10 times throughout the season to attend these different workshops. And so that is a really cool program for lots of reasons. Um, I think kind of the big thing that stands out is that both farmers and people who want to learn about farming benefit. So you have the ability to support farmers in recruiting apprentices and farm labor. Um, And then you also are connecting all of these different apprentices and farmers both to each other and then just to the greater growing network. So I think that the Growing Growers program is really essential in, you know, developing these relationships between different people that are involved in the food system. Um, I was a Growing Growers apprentice in 2015 and I worked at Fair Share Farm. And so what's really cool is that many of these apprentices, you know, go on to either start their own farm. We have several graduated apprentices that have started their own urban or rural farm. We have several that are working in the food system um, at nonprofits or at universities or at extension. Um, So it's really cool because we're building this network of growers that are interconnected. Do you find that those that were in the apprenticeship program as they go on become mentors to others that were walking in their shoes previously? Yes, definitely. I can think of a couple, you know, that have worked that did an apprenticeship and then they started their own farm and then they host workshops or they host their own apprentices, which is really awesome. And then, you know, people who go into the nonprofit sector, like we still 
I myself, we still provide workshops and lots of education and we have staff that sit on that steering committee. So there's definitely, you know, that sense of people, you know, they're a mentee and then they become a mentor. It's wonderful. It's a, what a, what a great kind of cycle of paying it forward. Um, so let's turn back to the new roots for refugees program. Um, I, I find this, you know, incredibly impactful from what I know of it um, and and how you approach, um, you know, being able to connect with refugees, build your, you know, capacity and reach through partnerships with other, other nonprofits. I, I certainly can't, um, you know, articulate it as well as you since you live it every day. So um, New Roots for Refugees, what is it all about? Yeah, so New Roots for Refugees is a four-year farmer training program and incubator farm that was founded in 2008. It's a partnership between Cultivate KC and Catholic Charities of Northeast Kansas. So Catholic Charities of Northeast Kansas does most of the refugee resettlement on the Kansas side. Um, So they have a ton of experience in case management, working with refugees, working with interpreters and translators. They just know the populations really, really well, and they provide lots of other support services for anyone, but also for refugees specifically. Um, So it's kind of obvious why we partnered, you know, with our background in managing farms and doing farmer training and then their background with working with this population. It was a really good fit. Um, So the program is structured as a four-year program. So we recruit new families every fall that have some type of agricultural background from their home country. And this could really vary. You know, some farmers had their own farm and were growing and selling. Some were working for someone else's farm. Maybe they were just selling produce for another grower. But in some way, they were involved in agriculture in their home country and they come here and they still want to work in agriculture. So farmers spend four years on our shared farm, which is called Juniper Gardens Training Farm. They each receive their own quarter acre plot They have access to a shared greenhouse to start their transplants, a shared wash stand and cooler area, access to shared equipment and a tool library. And then we also have a supply store where we can resell them supplies that they might need need while they're farming. And then while they're in the program, we teach English classes in the winter, a series of farm classes in the early season, so February through April. And then once the growing season starts, we shift to providing one-on-one technical assistance to farmers and then supporting them with sales. So all of the farmers go to either one or more farmers markets throughout the metro, um, and they all are able to sell through an aggregated CSA and wholesale that we as a staff aggregate and distribute. This year, we're also members of a local uh, food hub, which is called the Kansas City Food Hub, which is a farmer cooperative where they also aggregate produce and sell. And they are really trying to reach larger institutional buyers like schools or corporate cafeterias. So we're excited mm-hmm. about that new partnership. Fantastic. So, you know, I'm assuming you work with Catholic Charities to recruit from those, you know, clients that they may know or have um, as they work with the refugee resettlement, right? Correct. Yeah. Catholic Charities leads on recruitment because they do have 
lots of relationships with refugees that come through their agency. But interestingly, we've gotten to a point, this is the 15th growing season of the program. And we kind of have gotten, we've gotten to a point where we don't have to do a lot of recruitment because there's a lot of word of mouth that's happening Mm -hmm. with people who have been in the program or know someone in the program. So we have lots of farmers that reach out to us before recruitment even begins and we kind of start a list Um, But then we still advertise it, you know, through Catholic Charities of Northeast Kansas and then JBS, which is the refugee resettlement organization on the Missouri side of the city. Hmm. Are there any specific refugee groups that are that you find are more prevalent in in sort of your applicant pool, Um, you know, maybe because there's more of an agricultural background Uh, for those particular cultures or because there's just a higher volume of those refugees settling in your region? Yeah, so refugee resettlement totally varies. Um, And yeah, currently we primarily serve refugees from Burma or Myanmar or Congolese farmers. So either they came from the Democratic Republic of Congo or Tanzania or Burundi, other countries around that area. And as, you know, refugee resettlement shifts to support other populations, our program participants shift in who we are supporting. But I would say that it's a little bit slower. So, you know, we had a huge influx of Afghan refugees. Well, we're probably not going to see any of those interested in the program for at least a couple of years until they've kind of had time to settle in, figure out where they're going to live, where they're going to work, where their kids are going to go to school. So there's a little bit of a lag. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it's so overwhelming um, to, you know, go through this process and, you know, get acclimated to an entirely new community. Um, but it's wonderful to hear that there are these tools that are available to the, um, the, you know, the refugees that are, um, finding the Kansas City region as their new home and, and being able to give them those tools necessary to, um, you know, become self-sustaining, um, and build upon skills that they already have. Um, so, uh, what's, what's, uh, going to be sort of the next steps? Is there, is there a vision for, um, the the program going forward? Do you have any new things you might be adding to the mix for the New Roots for Refugees? So I didn't mention this, but, you know, since 2008, when we started the program, we've graduated 40 families from the program, and about 31 of those are still farming. So we have a really big percentage of folks that are still growing around the metro. So mm-hmm. in the past couple of years... We have recognized the need to provide more support for uh, for graduates. We train about 12 families per year, and we have 31 graduates. So that's kind of been a shifting focus. Um, we've also recognized plots that can be leased to graduates, and we're also you know leasing greenhouse space and cooler and washstand space so that even if farmers have somewhere to grow, they don't really have the burden of needing sure. to build a greenhouse or build a whole washstand. Um, that's something we're hoping to increase the capacity for in the next, hopefully, year or two. Um, we own an acre right next to Juniper Gardens that is completely undeveloped, and we're hoping to add a whole nother larger greenhouse there and build an additional 
wash and storage area because we have had folks graduate from the program that have purchased land within a mile of the training farm. And so this is a really great opportunity for us to have more shared infrastructure so that the land that they purchase near the farm can be just for growing produce and they don't have to use up precious growing space to build this infrastructure. Wow. I can't imagine how useful that has to be for, um, you know, people that desperately need those, you know, that kind of infrastructure, that, you know, capital that they're not going to be able to get on their own. That's awesome. Extremely useful. And greenhouses are really expensive to put up. And realistically, Mm -hmm. farmers use them a few months out of the year. So they don't need to have one year round. So for us to kind of take that burden off is extremely helpful. Yeah, I believe that. Another new thing or that we're pretty excited about is last year we received a SARA grant, Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education, to create more educational materials for farmers about climate resilience and adaptation. Mm. So this is like something that's super technical and scientific, and this information isn't really available in plain language or other languages. So we're working with Laura Langnick, who's a climate resilience expert based out of the Glenwood Center in New York. She's helping us with this project. Um, So we're going to hopefully create more courses to teach farmers about this, but also we wrote in lots of money to purchase supplies so that farmers can adopt these practices and try things like using shade cloth, using row cover, um, different pest management strategies, planting native and beneficial plants in their plots, um, just breaking down more barriers so that farmers can adopt these practices. Wow. I mean, I I feel like Cultivate KCU has do everything. Um, And um, we look forward to um, welcoming as our next guest, um, one of the farmers that have actually gone through the program. So um, we want to thank you for uh, joining us and certainly thank you for the work that you do uh, for the Kansas City community and surrounding areas. So um, thank you again. And we're going to be welcoming one of your farmers here shortly. Great. Thank you so much. This is Eat Your Heartland Out. We'll be right back after a quick break with more from Cultivate Casey. is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. This hour, we're focused on urban farming efforts in the Midwest. 
I've been speaking with Cultivate KC Program Director Semra Fedovich about their new Roots for Refugees programs. And now I'm honored to welcome one of the refugees who is participating in this landmark program. Kassal is a Burmese native now living in Kansas City. Kassal, we're really glad that you could take some time to uh, be on the show today. Tell us, uh, where are you from and how long have you been in the Kansas City area? Uh, I'm from Burma and then uh, United States and it's uh, already six years, but Kansas City is uh, almost four years. Where were you before Kansas City? Uh, Illinois. Illinois, okay. Yes. So how did you learn of the Cultivate KC, the New Roots for Refugee program? Uh, here, the, our community is the big chain community. And then here we are like, I think we are totally 5,000 something here. And then uh, our church member, they recommend, there is a, uh, they call Catholic charity something. They don't know Catholic Casey. <laughs> they, they, they told every time, uh, Catholic charity, Catholic charity. So, and then I joined here and then they told me that from our community. Yes. I, so I know that, um, you know, the uh, Cultivate KC, Cultivate Kansas City, does work with Catholic charities uh, to identify um, folks such as yourself in the refugee community to participate in this program to train for, you know, farming and agriculture. Um, did you farm? Were you in agriculture before you came to the United States? Not for business, just uh, like I would say by year, uh, I helping my mom and then something like that, just little space, not big space like this. Yeah, so you're, you're dealing with a much bigger space and before you had a smaller space that you were working in. So what was your experience? Did you, you, did you go through the whole four-year program for New Roots for Refugees? Yeah, uh, I'm willing. Right now, uh, I'm third year, so one more year, and then I will stay here four years. And then if they allow me, uh, yeah, maybe five, six, seven, <laughs> eight, nine, ten, maybe. That's great. <laughs> Sounds like you've enjoyed it. So what have, yes. what have you learned so far? What has happened in the last three years? A lot, a lot. Think too much. So <laughs> I, I don't remember that, that one, that one. But uh, really... Uh, different our the weather and then we don't have the snow our country just uh is it cool but some sometimes very cool but not like this uh so the the big issue is the weather and then very hot summer and then our country not like this not not very hot, you know, no, never, I would say never hundred something. Here there's some hundred and then 90, this week 90, so yeah. really hot. Is it really different? Yeah, it's a different climate. I hear that from a lot of people that have moved into um, the Midwest and communities, uh, you know, across the region that it takes a little bit of getting used to that, the climate being, you know, extreme in some ways, you know, you have the heat and the cold, like you said, big storms. And so, you know, you have to adapt and, and learn about uh, how you can grow in, the, in those kinds of environments. What are you growing now? What are you working on? Uh, I grow, um, I would say, like beet, radish, um, that color green, sweet chard, something like. Uh, I try a lot, fennel, and then but. Sometimes I don't really know yet what happened. Last year, 
my B very good this year no good and then uh, last year my friend uh, no good but this year very good <laughs> and then so really confused and then well that's uh, that's part of the that's part of the learning process right and you know uh, people that have been growing for decades you know they have a good crop one year and a terrible crop the next and you know there's a lot of factors that go into that oh yes <laughs> yeah yes so how do you think that participating in the new routes for refugees is going to impact, um, you know, your life going forward? Um, do you see yourself, you know, staying in agriculture and making a living out of it after you're done? Uh, yeah, I, I would say all the way, I want to be farmer. <laughs> and then, so uh, I will do future too, but I need like bigger space and then something. And then I, I need a lot of experience too. And then right now, I think myself is it the the growing is the uh not very good, but okay. And then the selling that you know like selling space the like um, not just market and then CSA wholesale something and then uh the store something I wanna join like that. And then yeah, mm -hmm. pretty pretty good right now, but. Uh, I think a little bit too small for me, <laughs> but is it right? Right now we are training just thirty years, so yeah, you're st you're still learning, but you have big plans. Um, and I think that uh, you know, the the tools that you're going to get through Cultivate KC and the New Roots for Refugees program, um, sounds like they will really set you up for success and are already doing that. Um, before we let you go, I want to ask you if you could tell someone who was, um, you know, applying to um, be part of this program, what would you tell them? What would you want someone to know um, that might be considering doing what you're doing right now? I want to tell you the new new people and then uh, like how to say, uh, follow and stretch, uh, I would say like that, and then what they say, and then first year, second year, and then after first year, second year, and they they got a little bit experience. So first year and second year, like be patient, and then sometimes uh, I would say we we make money for just guests, <laughs> so not extra money, something like that. So uh, the first year and second year, we need to patient, and then. Third year, fourth year, maybe we will got a little bit extra. And then uh, patience. Thank you. <laughs> patience. Patience is, a, patience is a virtue and patience is important, particularly when, you know, you're growing things and you're dealing with a lot of different factors and, um, you know, you kind of have to wait for things to come together. You can't, we can't rush nature. Um, patience sounds like a very good piece of advice for anybody that's considering um, participating in the program. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy, um, but we appreciate you coming in, uh, you know, from, from growing and, and spending some time to speak with us today. Stick around for more Eat Your Heartland Out after these messages. I'm Louisa Kasdan, host of Let's Talk About Food. I recently hosted an exciting live podcast event in Boston and interviewed incredible women entrepreneurs who have received small business coaching from the Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program. 
When I was applying to law school and I got in, I said, you know what, I'm still young, let me pivot and go into the food industry and really follow my passion. I was kind of scared. It was a new thing to me. It was like, hey, I don't want me in the newspaper. I just want to be in my room, in my house. (laughs) So that was when I'm like, okay, now that I'm in the local newspaper, I better not disappoint the people that, you know, that have this belief in me. And on the days that you're tired or you feel defeated, just keep going. And 10 people might tell you no, but that doesn't mean that's your end result. You just have to keep going. Hear their stories on Let's Talk About Food, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again to Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream for supporting this episode. Our final guest this hour is Katie Hoke, Executive Director of Urban Harvest STL, an organization committed to food justice and growing culturally appropriate foods for communities across St. Louis. Katie, welcome to Eat Your Heartland Out. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, your organization in St. Louis is pretty incredible and has been around for a while. Um, But so let's rewind to the beginning. Um, Give us the origin story of Urban Harvest and um, kind of how you got from there to here. Urban Harvest started um, in 2011, and it was the the brainchild of two architects um, that were looking for some space in downtown St. Louis to grow. Um, they were looking to reuse underutilized urban spaces and started with a community garden that eventually branched into a rooftop garden that was putting a building, an old storage facility, um, about a 10,000 square foot roof into use to grow food for their, their neighbors. And as that got started, they started producing more food than they could actually use. And so what started out as kind of an architectural innovation, um, looking to, um, do something different, moved into more of a food charity and growing food and donating that to area food pantries, um, food assistance programs. And that continued um, for quite a while. And I think that over COVID and with a lot of the um, racial injustice um, that we're seeing, we really have had to step back and question like, what are we doing? And really wanting to focus less on growing food to provide to food pantries, but really question why it is that food pantries and that kind of assistance is needed. And so over the last several years, um, you know, COVID having exacerbated that problem, looking at our mission and saying, we really want to change the food system. We don't want to just be growing food, but we want to look at why this system exists and what we can do in order to enact that change. Well, I mean, I think it's really fascinating that, you know, this organization started by architects, Mm -hmm. you know, really kind of trying to find ways to grow on, you know, rooftops basically has now um, evolved into something that is is much uh, much more impactful. Not to say that that was not impactful, but you know, really trying to impact food systems is something that um, you know we hear maybe as a buzzword, but don't really necessarily understand 
what that means because, you know, on the surface, um, you know, food seems pretty straightforward. You needed to eat, you needed to live. People that don't have it, we need to try to help them to get it. You need nutrition in order to be healthy. But there's so much more to um, food insecurity and uh, food justice. Um, how does uh, Urban Harvest kind of see that issue of, um, you know, food justice, food systems, um, and what are they doing to actually tackle it? What kind of programs um, have you put together? Yeah, I think, you know, from our perspective, food systems um, involve both, you know, what you're eating, but as, a, as well as your knowledge around that. And so mm-hmm. we have um, created a, several educational programs that really introduce people to growing. Um, you know, and there's multiple kind of areas of impact there. There is both the have you ever grown fresh produce and do you know how to incorporate that into your diet? Do you have the space to do it? If you don't have land, how can you use other methods that are affordable to still provide that same level of nutrition um, and fresh inputs? Um, we have a community garden or a school garden at Flans Early Learning Center in Carr Square, which is in North St. Louis, um, in a low-access, low-income community. And we're working with 36 three-year-olds there to show them how plants grow, um, what a strawberry tastes like fresh from the garden, you know, what a potato looks like when it's still growing in the ground. And through that, we're hoping that we'll impact those students and their food choices long-term. And mm-hmm. in fact, their whole support network, if we're able to insert those kind of food choices as an option, that might change both their health outcomes long-term as well as their family's health outcomes. Um, everything that we grow at that farm is donated to the school kitchen, and Chef Leroy prepares meals for about 90 students that are at that facility. And so not only are we kind of interacting with the students on an educational level, but they're seeing that in their, in their meals, um, and they're getting access to that. Um, through those school lunches. What kind of reaction have you gotten from a three-year-old? Um, you know, you think like it's never too early to start learning, right? But, you know, three is, is you know, a, a pretty early age um, to start to get exposed to um, how things grow. And um, like you said, getting exposed early to um, smart food choices. What are, what are the three-year-olds saying to, you, to the folks in the program? I, I mean, they don't really know that it's learning. They just see it as going out into the garden and being able to, you know, pick the produce, feel the plants, um, smell the uh, the herbs that are growing. It's located right next to their playground, and so there's a lot of kind of in and out of play as well as garden. And so, oh, that's I great. Really, I really hope that. They don't see it as a lesson, but it's more just part of their life because that's the kind of impact that we want to see, that people no longer see this as um, a choice that they're having to make because that's what the food system is, choices, um, that it's just part of their life. And so we have lots of fun with those students um, during their weekly lesson. Oh, I bet. And kids love dirt, so that helps, right? Correct. 
Correct. Uh, what about their families? I mean, what kind of, um, you know, feedback have you gotten from families, caregivers, community members, um, you know, for these kids um, and that are participating in the program? What what have they been saying? I think it's really interesting that we have tried to focus what we grow in our curriculum around that community input, whether that be family members or the chefs or um, local residents that are around that area. We really want to be culturally responsive or culturally appropriate in what we're growing. So for example, at Flans, there's a measurable Somali population. Mm-hmm. And so our response to that is really trying to figure out what it is that will make um, that population feel welcome. And so we have done that through growing sorghum. It's, it's something that we can grow that they would recognize and welcome them into that farm and know that that's a space for them. Um, we need to do a lot better job at kind of bringing those groups in. And so we're doing some workshops at um, that space um, that focuses on you know, kids and edible art and having hmm. fun in the garden. Yeah, I was I was just going to ask, and you actually partially answered this question, but how do you get that feedback? How do you identify that shoregum is something that, you know, the Somali community, you know, needs or wants? Mm-hmm. Um, or how do you get that feedback from the, you know, school kitchen um, and the people that, and the students and families that, um, you know, utilize that facility what kind of give and take? How do you how do you um, assemble and and uh, you know really kind of synthesize that feedback to put it into practice? Sure, we have great partners at at Flance and and all of our sites, and so we don't we don't grow on our own land. We're in partnership at all of our four farms with another organization. And so whether it be working with their in-house chef, like Chef Leroy at Flance, to say what it is that he wants to prepare, how we can support that um, through our growing, um, working with the school administration to see, like, what are the shifts in your population um, and how we can kind of match that up. Um, We work with um, two distribution venues um, to donate our, you know, to donate our food to the community. And so working with the staff um, at those locations to say, this is what people are asking for, as well as just interacting with their clients and seeing Mm -hmm. what people are really excited about. Um, We did our first um, donation at um, a food pantry in North St. Louis and had a whole harvest worth of mustard greens And that was something that was really exciting um, to the people that were at that pantry. And so knowing that that is something that people are looking at. And so it's both systematic as well as anecdotal um, and trying to collaborate and bring those two things um, together to develop our crop plans and and our educational programs so that Mm -hmm. people know that there are different things that grow at different times and what your yields can be and and how we can distribute that throughout the community. Sure. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's a mutual education, it seems. Um, and, you know, speaking of these educational programs, um, you know, give us some, some examples um, of the type of education programs that, that um, the organization puts forth. Yeah. I think our main um, program outside of our, our 
work with early learning centers is our apprenticeship program. Um, this is an eight-week program that has both like an in-class lecture workshop component as well as work out in the um, on our farms. And so people are learning about things during their weekly seminar and able to then apply some of those things when they're out on the farms once a week. Um, mm -hmm. We also try to bring in... Um, different growers, um, you know, BIPOC farmers, um, so that we are not only putting forth our techniques, but really sharing that this is a community and that there are lots of people that are growing in lots of different ways based on their specific experience and their location. And so another important part of this is having field trips to those spaces. In our first cohort, um, we were able to visit George Washington Carver Farms, which is a project of Ujima in St. Louis. And Nick Speed, who is the founder of that, is starting a brand new farm. Um, we were out there digging up the old fence posts, and, and there's nothing there. And so that's a great experience for our apprentices to see. You can start with nothing and get great yeah. results. Um, this will be going to... New Roots Urban Farm and some other um, farms throughout the area throughout the summer. Um, this is a, there are six cohorts that go for eight weeks. And so we start in March and it'll take us through October. And so each of those cohorts are getting a little different experience based on the growing the season, season um, <laughs> and the time of year. Sure. I, I can imagine. I mean, there, there is those variations. And, and you mentioned that as, you know, the, uh, the apprentices in the individual cohorts, they go to field trips, they get exposed to different methodologies uh, utilized by, you know, different communities and exposing them to BIPOC growers. Um, and uh, I would love to get uh, maybe a, a tangible uh, example of some of those differences um, that, you know, may be exhibited, um, you know, when uh, an apprentice goes on a field trip and they see something new. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is we really want to um, attribute appropriately these growing techniques. And so um, we use these on our farms, but a lot of farmers are using Afro-Indigenous techniques um, that have been kind of reintroduced as this new thing, the no-till gardening, the regenerative practices. And so as opposed to, you know, tilling up the earth and having to add fertilizer and add different soil amendments in order to re-energize that soil. At the end of the season, as opposed to pulling up your plants and, and leaving nothing in the soil, cutting them off at um, ground level and leaving those roots to be in the soil to eventually become, you know, in-bed composting and, and re- introducing those nutrients and that material to the soil um, that will improve it over time. Um, those are things that we utilize, but we have learned those through other growers. And so to see them in practice other places, um, there's, you know, sheet mulching techniques where you can utilize your old cardboard to provide mulch and coverage for your plants and it eventually breaks down and, again, becomes compost and enriches that soil. And so there's lots of no-barrier um, techniques that we just need to relearn um, because they've been around for hundreds of years. 
I love this. This is like such. A, this is like literally taking like cultural competency to a whole different level. You know, recognizing that you know a number of these practices, while still utilized today in different ways, you know, their origins do come from uh, you know indigenous or Afro indigenous um, you know communities and practices. Um, what a wonderful way to you know um, elevate. Um, you know, and re and reeducate uh, the community, um, so people really understand um, the contributions that are being made um, and and where they come from. Because you know, everything has a context, everything has a backstory, uh, and sometimes we forget that. Uh, so I th- I think that that's that's wonderful. The other thing that you know I think is is great about your apprenticeship program. My understanding is is that you really do prioritize applicants from uh, low income low access communities uh, and even have a you know some retirees as well in the mix. We do. We have um, three retirees in our current cohort and so it's really exciting to see the mixing of generations. We actually have a, a mother and daughter um, pair on this on this cohort. And so to see those um, interactions and um, you know one of our one of our current apprentices has, you know, 10 years of experience growing things in his backyard, but he just hasn't had a whole lot of luck. And so being able to provide him just that little bit of information to help him get over um, whatever he was experiencing in his backyard, um, you know, really has energized him to be more involved. And then, you know, reacting or uh, relating to the women that are kind of more in their mid-20s and this is their first experience in, in growing and you know, you can do this and, and failure is sometimes our best teacher. And so mm-hmm. trying to use not only our teachings, but our apprentices experiences as educational opportunities as well. Um, we have seen a huge shift in the participation of this program. Last year, we had an unpaid internship and got mostly you know, recent college grads or people that had the resources to devote the time unpaid. Sure. This year we have shifted to providing um, a small stipend as well as transportation assistance. Um, we did a lot of our recruitment through our distribution partners. And so really had a shift in the people applying to that program and actually got 60 more applications than we had spots in that program. And so that tells us this is something that is needed and this community is looking for. And we're really excited to be able to do more and, and be able to put more of those people through this, through this program. Right. That's, that's, I mean, you know, I think you bring up a very good point about the fact that, you know, a lot of internships are the way forward, you know, as far as being able to get access to future employment, build skills um, that you can then, you know, put on your resume. And, and it really is an, an, uh, a tool of upward mobility, but it oftentimes is, is one that is, you know, sort of uh, couched in privilege too, because if you, if it's unpaid, you know, you're leaving a lot of people, you know, mm-hmm. out in the cold. And the fact that, you know, you're recognizing that, you know, at least trying to, um, you know, provide some financial uh, support in, in a stipend to, you know, open this experience up, ensuring that there's equity um, and the access to to that uh, apprenticeship, I think is just wonderful and sounds like it's, it's you know, helping feed into fulfilling the mission 
of the organization. Um, so what's on the horizon? Um, what's, what are the next plans? I mean, you have some, you know, you've already taken on a, quite a bit of ambitious, uh, you know, activity with, you know, education and community engagement and, uh, you know, production of food. Um, what's, what's next? Yeah, I think it's really, Looking at what we're currently doing um, and doing well and seeing if we can build on that. So we are looking to add um, some more early learning centers to our early learning center curriculum. Um, so possibly adding one or two more sites to that. Um, we're also in conversation with St. Louis Public Schools to be able to develop a garden curriculum for one of the middle schools. And so this will be our mm. first foray into kind of traditional K through eight education, which, you know, doesn't necessarily align with the growing season. Um, but seeing how we can support after-school programming as well as work with the faculty members on developing in-class and in-school um, activities as well as field trips and just bring our networks into that system to provide both, you know, science-based education through growing and, you know, chlorophyll and, and all of that um, type of thing, but also looking at, you know, are there options for history classes to learn about the three sisters and traditional indigenous mm, growing techniques absolutely. and, and being able to enrich a wider range of disciplines than we traditionally have thought of science, you know, science-based activities. Well, I mean, that's, again, the, the most interesting thing to me about food is that it touches so many different aspects of our life and our culture, and it, and it can be that tool for um, educating on everything from, you know, science to history. Um, and it seems like you're trying to integrate all of those things into, uh, as I said earlier, a pretty ambitious program, mm -hmm. but but one that it sounds incredibly impactful. And I want to congratulate uh, you and the organization on everything that you're doing, uh, particularly on the community engagement. I just find it fascinating um, and really think that, you know, other communities could really benefit from getting that feedback from those that, you know, they work with and that they feed to make sure that... Um, what's being produced um, is culturally relevant to the diets, um, not just nutritious, but also culturally relevant um, uh, and respecting those traditions of some of the, you know, immigrant communities um, in, uh, throughout our country. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. <laughs>